Last week I pointed out that in these verses, which is halfway through the longest sermon we have that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount, that he says something so radical and so unnatural, it's almost outrageous, when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because the obvious question is, where else can you store them? And if not here and now, then where and when? And he clarifies that. Uh, in, when he says treasures, that's a very broad term. That could be a lot of things. It can be possessions. It could be attitudes toward your possessions, interest, ambitions, so forth. And he warns us not to store them up just here on earth because they're temporary. They are temporary. You will ultimately lose them. Then the positive side in verse 20 is, he says, do store up treasures in heaven. And that's what we looked at. And I closed that sermon rather abruptly, knowing I would continue today, with the fact that the, the, normal, the normal response when we think about giving sacrificially, giving money uh, to, to the cause of the kingdom, the normal response either will be materialistic, which is, look, other things are just more important to me. These things I can touch and have, these tangible items. And that's a form of materialism. The other is just worry. Well, I think it's a good idea, but what will happen to me if I do so? How will I meet my obligations, which already seem to exceed what I can do right now? So this part speaks to that. I believe that this section on worry and anxiety about the details of life intentionally follows the part about laying treasure up in heaven because those in the first century, just like us, would say, how can I do that? And they say, it sounds like a good idea. I just don't see the practical reality of it. So he has this section on anxiety, or depending if you've got another version, it may say worry. It's the same word. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. It's It's a German term that means to choke. Worry or anxiety is a form of mental even emotional strangulation. And it's always nearly small, extremely small, compared, the issue is usually small, compared to the size that it forms in our minds and the damage it can do to us. Someone has said that worry or anxiety is borrowing tomorrow's problems and bringing them into today and then worrying about them now even though nothing's happened. How inclusive is this these commands not to be anxious. Well, it says don't be anxious about your life. Kind of sums it all up. All of your well-being, your physical well-being, your emotional well-being, your spiritual well-being, your, your material well-being. Basically, this is a hard line, and I'm not going to get any amens. This is saying that anxiety in any aspect of our lives is wrong. That's where this is going. Okay, he mentioned about not storing up treasure on earth, but in heaven no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And then verse 25 says, Therefore, because no one can serve two masters, in other words, uh, therefore we should serve God. It's a matter uh, of choice. Uh, There's a throne in each life, uh, and it can only be occupied by one, either by you or, or by money, or by something else, or by God. And so there cannot be more than one. Worry is an indicator of which master is on the throne. Because if it's all about me, 
then I will worry about a lot, a lot of things because I will take the full responsibility for those. Years ago, there was a uh, popular musician. There was an acoustic band called America. They had several hits, Horse With No Name, Ventura Highway, Sister Golden Hair. You know, the big hits they play once a year on the oldies stations now that some of us here remember. Well, the leader of that band was named Dan Peake, and Dan became a Christian. And uh, he, uh, I read about his life and his testimony, and uh, the day came that they lived in California, and one of those fast fires came through, and their house, he and his wife and their, their daughter, I believe, escaped, and they had to stand in a nearby river, and the house got consumed, and the houses around them. And they went back in, and here was all this memorabilia from gold records and instruments all got burned up. And he, by that time, had come to grips with this teaching, and he said to himself, Lord, what have you done to all of your possessions? <laughs> he had learned, began to learn, of, of if he's my master, then anything I have belongs to him, and he's responsible for it. Here are four reasons given here not to worry. The first reason is because God is your master. You're not to worry because he's your master and therefore he's responsible for you. Last week we looked at the bad news and the good news of the, the gospel, of how we are made right with God, that we are born as sinners, that, that the, the punishment for sin is death, separation from God, physical death. And yet God sends a redeemer, the Lord Jesus, who lived a perfect life and allowed himself to be hung on a cross and there he suffered as a substitute to take the place of sinful people like you and me. And then he died and after three days rose again and appeared to hundreds of people over 40 days. And the last commandment he gave to his disciples was they were to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, telling them what Christ had done. And now we receive that through faith. At that point, God becomes your master. And guess what? The good news is your master is responsible for you. He takes care of you. He is the one who provides for you when you decide to follow him. Um, Right out of college, Barbara and I were uh, married. I was finished college at a Christmas and was serving on a church staff in Boca Raton, Florida. And during that time, we planned it to get married. And then after uh, we were married and lived, lived there in South Florida, and the elders of the church and, and the pastors said, we think you have gifts for ministry. We, we think we affirm that. You need more training. You need theological education. So we enrolled in uh, Reformed Seminary uh, Graduate School, for those not sure what a seminary is, in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, I was to go and start summer Greek. The summer Greek at that time in that curriculum was to cram two years of college Greek into uh, ten weeks over the summer. Uh, so I had a couple of weeks in between finishing my job in Florida and moving to Jackson, and we were at my parents' house in Alabama before we made the final move. And I was with my dad one night in a cafeteria, Morrison's, y'all heard Morrison's Cafeteria. It's a much lower level than SNS, Jimmy. Um, and we were sitting there, and like my dad and I would do, the conversation immediately turns to money and provisions and what do you have and what do you need. And so he's asking me, how do you plan to do this? You're going to school, you're going to be in school full-time. And I said, well, I'm going to work part-time. Barbara's a registered dietitian. She's going to get a job in a hospital. And, and I kind of laid out my plan, which I knew he wasn't going to be real impressed with. 
and he uh, sat and listened, and I'm feeling more and more uncomfortable, and I'm just going through this, and he seems to, well, you're forgetting something, aren't you? And I'm like, what? I've thought of everything. I've thought of every contingency I can think of. I said, what have I forgotten? He said, you've got me. (laughs) Meaning, I can help you. If you need help, I'll help you. I had thought it not crossed my mind. My father, you've got me. You know what this is saying? Christ is saying, you've got a father, believer. You've got a father who cares for you uh, and can help you. So that's our first reason not to worry. The second is because truly he cares for us. Verse 26 describes the birds. I won't reread the passage, but you can look at it. Uh, He uses birds as an object lesson. Uh, They don't have some complicated process of acquiring food. He says, look, they don't sow. They don't go out there with their plows and then sow seed. You don't drive down the highway and say, look at those birds out there. They're sowing seed and and then they've got these little implements. They're gathering them. Look at those little bird barns by the, by the road there where they've stored their seed. No, we don't see anything like that. It's not a sophisticated process by which they, they gather. God gives them, he's created them, the instinct to find those resources for themselves and their offspring. And yet it says there, your heavenly Father feeds them. But they're not sitting around and waiting. They're not lazy. He's not suggesting the birds do nothing. They are diligent. They are persistent. They are at work. You and I are to be the same. We're to be diligent. We're to be responsible to work, to put forth effort. But the birds don't, they don't appear to worry about where their next meal is coming from. We've got a bird's nest right outside of our bedroom window. To this day, I've never heard any murmuring like, oh, I don't know. Worm season's down this year. It's been kind of dry. You know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he says, if God so purposely and carefully takes care of such relatively insignificant creatures as birds, how much more will he take care of those he has created in his own image? The Bible is filled with arguments from the lesser to the greater. This one has much of it. If God does all of this for something that's lesser, a bird... How much more will he do for the greater, for those created in his image? There's a poem several years ago. I don't know who wrote it, but as a new Christian, I heard Phil Kagey sing it more times than I can count. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. So we don't worry. We should not worry because we have a Father who cares for us. Then in verse 27, he talks about, are you concerned about the length of your life? We can exercise and and try to stay healthy in whatever ways with food and so forth, and and that can be beneficial. Uh, And yet, that will not force God into extending our lives uh, any more beyond what he chooses. Clothing is the third illustration, verses 28 and following. He uses... Flowers, the lilies included all the wild flowers that covered the Galilean countrysides. And imagine now he's speaking to people who probably had very little in the way of wardrobes, uh, maybe two sets, maybe just one set of clothes. And he's telling them not to worry about their clothes. If he told them who had one simple garment not to worry, what would he say to us? Who 
have a hard time getting around to carrying all the stuff off to, to Goodwill or wherever, the clothes closet down here. Oh, I've worn it three times now. How will I ever be seen in public with it again? Or, oh, the colors faded a little bit since six weeks ago when I bought it. Or whatever it may be, what would he say to us that really don't worry about where our clothes will come from? It's more how many clothes there are. But he mentions this about if he does that with the, the, the wildflowers uh, and they ultimately are burned up. Apparently dried grass and dried flowers were often used to heat ovens where food was baked. And so once the flower, the beauty was gone, it had little use except to be burned up for fuel. And he's saying if God so arrays the grass of the field with this, this panoply of colors and they're only temporary and then they're useless afterwards. Then they're just used for, for, fire, for fuel, for a fire. How much more will he do for you who are made in his image? So what is Jesus prohibiting? He's not prohibiting planning, forethought. Uh, birds make nests, you know. Uh, they make provision for the future. They do store up. They lay and incubate their eggs. They feed their young. They migrate to warmer climates before winter. So he's not condemning planning and forethought and making plans for the future. What he's condemning is worry and anxious thought. Third reason not to worry is you're not to worry because of your faith. Worry is a sign of unbelief. It's natural, he says, for the Gentiles. and In other words, they are pagans, unbelievers, just the ungodly, those who leave God out. It's natural for them to worry. I mean, if they say they, have, they don't believe in God, there's no hope in God, that you could only hope in the here and now, and they have nothing to live for but the present and this life and all that there is, and their materialism is perfectly consistent with that worldview. It, it makes perfect sense. If there is no God, then I am ultimately responsible. I must take care of myself. I'm not going to waste time on prayer or seeking guidance or anything like that. I must make it happen. I must get everything for myself and those I love and there's no heavenly father, so there's, there's, uh, that's all I can do. He's saying, now there's reason to worry then. That makes sense to worry if it's all up to you. If there is no God, if there is no heavenly father. But that's foolish for believers to approach life this way. We're to live in a higher world since we have a father in heaven. George Mueller, who ran the faith-based orphanage in London for so many years, said the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith, and the beginning of faith is the end of anxiety. This past week, one of the uh, most worthwhile things I did was to listen to one of the biographical messages that John Piper gave at his annual pastor's conference. Now, if you haven't taken advantage of those resources. There are 27 biographies. They go back 27 years that John Piper, each year at their National Pastors Conference, that's what he does, a 75-minute presentation on some character from church history. Ancient church history, recent church history, Martin Luther, John Calvin, J. Gresham Machen, John Owen, Charles Spurgeon, Athanasius, Charles Simeon, uh, many others like that. George Whitfield. This year he did Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was the missionary to inland China 
in the 1800s, went there, I believe, in 1853 from England. That work still continues uh, in China that was started by Hudson Taylor. I, I listened to the 75-minute message two different mornings. I try to, my mind's just mush when I get up, and so I go up into this home office I have, and it just helps me to immediately begin listening to something that try to wake up by and get my mind straight. So uh, over two mornings, I listened to that. I thought I knew about Hudson Taylor, but I realized how little I did know. Uh, in 1853, he boarded a boat for his first trip to China. A storm, violent storm came up off the Welsh coast, and he felt it would be wrong to wear a life jacket because of his faith. So he gave his life jacket to someone else. Later, he realized that was a, uh, a mistake, that he was wrong in his thinking. And he wrote, The use of means ought not to lessen our faith in God, and our faith in God ought not to hinder our using whatever means he has given us for the accomplishment of his own purposes. Sometimes we have the idea that if God's in it, then human means just don't matter anymore. I don't have to work for it. I can just pray for it. I can just do that. Barbara and I go to graduate school years ago, and we are there, and my car catches fire. So I'm without a car, and I was working off the campus. We had house sat for this couple that used to work with Campus Crusade for Christ at Georgia Tech years ago, and now they had two young daughters, and we had stayed at their house for a few nights while they went on a trip. And when he came back, he said, so what are you going to do about a car? I said, I don't know. Well, he had no car, and he ended up giving us this car. I mean, it was like, hey, this is a miracle story. This sounds like Randy Pope or something like that. You know, somebody gives me a car, and it lasted about four years. Now, was, we could look at that and say, look what God gave us. He, he gave us his car. It really was remarkable. Well, that car wore out after about four years, and I needed another car. So I borrowed $2,000 from my parents and paid them back $100 a month with a no-interest loan until I paid off that 1980 Toyota Corolla. Which car did God supply? Both of them. No different. There's no different. One, one was not a God car, and this was a man car. This is a miracle car. This was an, uh, a natural car, how <laughs> we want to call it. They were both from God. They were just different means that were, that were proper at the right time or that were needed to, to achieve that. Now, some believers think, well, we must be exempt from trouble. No, note here. He talks about the sparrows and the birds. But he says sparrows do fall. They do die just as God cares for them. His promise was not that they would not fall, but that this would not happen without God's knowledge. So people fall. People get cancer. People get sick. People have heart attacks in and out of the church. But the reason why we are not anxious is because we don't think there may be trouble. It's just that we're under God's care with that. It's not the absence of trouble that now allows us not to be anxious. It's that with the trouble, we know we have a God who cares. Worry is forbidden. It's incompatible with the Christian life. Fourth reason not to worry is in verses 33 and 34, and that is because God will meet your needs as you seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. Now, this is a paradigm shift. This is a whole change of worldview because we are hardwired and taught 
seek first your kingdom, my kingdom. And now it's seek first his kingdom, which means seek first or seek earnestly above everything else, that give it priority. Jesus is saying to that crowd then and us, rather than seeking and worrying about food and clothes uh, like unbelievers do, focus your attention and hopes on the things of the Lord and he will take care of all your needs. His kingdom is his rule over his people, so to seek it first is to desire as a first importance to spread the reign of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to be a missionary or a pastor to do that. You can paint a house to the glory of God. You can sell insurance for the glory of God, the expansion of his kingdom. You can care for a baby. You can teach school. You can practice law. You can dig ditches. You can do mathematics, all for the glory of God, as long as they are submitted to Christ. And God's promise, all these things shall be added to you. What things? The things we're tempted to worry about. Food, clothing, etc. He will see to it that those needs are met. Queen Elizabeth I, the first, about 500 years ago, was told that she enlisted a businessman whom she needed to go to the New World, to make a voyage to the New World. And he said... Uh, I can't do that. And the reason is I have a fledgling business. And if I leave that business and go on this voyage, which will take at least months and perhaps even years, my business will collapse. And Queen Elizabeth responded, Good sir, if you tend to my business, I will surely tend to yours. Now, who's going to take better care of that guy's business? Himself or the Queen of England, perhaps the most powerful person in the world at that time? The most powerful ruler over all the universe basically says, you tend to my business, and rest assured, I will tend to your business. Do you believe that God says, seek first his kingdom, that he will add these things to you, that he will tend to your business as you tend to his? Will you cast yourself on that? Some of us here have a mutual friend named Ray Cortez. Ray and his wife, Diane, moved to Crystal River, Florida, oh, almost 30 years ago, to plant Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church. Ray and I were in school together, and we still stay in touch. And I heard him tell recently that he, when they moved there north of Tampa, and there was only a, a small core group of people that wanted a new church there, and, and by and large they were retired, older people, and it, it wasn't a real high-energy kind of start. He, he had to evangelize and talk to people, and he said the, about Christ, and the first couple he led to Christ had the privilege to seek become Christians, he said they could not have been more different in every way than by background than he was. He said this guy, this couple, was leather-wearing, motorcycle-driving, tattoo-sporting, chain-smoking, lived in a trailer. He said they were so different from me. And he said I would be at their house, at their kitchen table, going through the Gospel of John, talking to them about Christ, and he said, I would have to take my clothes and throw them away when those meetings were over. They smell so much like nicotine. 
But he said this couple had childlike faith, and it was, it was profound. He said, like all new Christians, some of you here are new Christians. You read this in the Bible, and you say, well, that's true, isn't it? God says, do it. We do it, don't we? God makes this promise. He'll keep it, won't he? That's why it's so refreshing to be around new Christians. And they were like that. And Ray said they would come to the gatherings, the church, loose definition at that time when it's getting started. And he said, I mean, he said, if I preached and said, you should love your neighbor, he said that week they would gather food from their neighborhood and take it to a widow in their neighbor, in their neighborhood and give it to her. He said, if I preach about the need to be a witness for Christ, the next week they'd be sitting there with three or four new people they brought. He said, that's just the way they were. It's like God says, do this. We trust God. He said, then one Sunday, he said, I preached on tithing. And they weren't there. He said, it's the first Sunday they had missed. And their ministry at the church was they would pick up, to show you how old this is, the cassette tapes, the cassette tape of the sermon the guy would come to the office and pick that up like on Monday, and then he would take it, and they would duplicate these tapes so the sermons could be distributed. And so the fellow comes to the office, and when he sees what Ray preached on, he said, my wife and I are really torn about this. He said, we are so far in credit card debt. He said, we have scheduled it out. It will take us three years to get out of the credit card debt we are in, and so we can't give until that three years is over. And he took the tapes, and he came back when he brought back the duplicates, and by then he'd listened to the tape, and he said, well, that settles it. We're tithing. He said, I have no idea how this is going to work out. He said, nine months later, he said, Pastor, I can't explain it, but those credit cards are paid off after nine months. What we're dealing with here, what Christ is inviting us to is a transfer of trust. That's what it is. Do I trust in myself or do I trust in him? Do I believe God that if I seek first his kingdom, if I tend to God's business, that he will tend to mine? Now, I ran out of time at the first service, but I've got time, and so I'm going to give you one little part that I had to cut off. I just slammed on the brakes at first service Whiplash, people went through the windshield, everything notes. <laughs> a word to worriers. We must recognize it for what it is. It's sin. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many prayer meetings I've been in, but I don't think I ever remember hearing anybody confess their sin of worry. I tend to think in the church we'll acknowledge it's sin, we just don't really think so. It doesn't seem as glaring as some of the other ones. So recognize it for what it is. Two, watch and pray against an anxious and worrisome spirit. And pray to the Lord about your tendency to worry about things which never come to pass. And ask yourself, where is my faith? Where is my confidence in the words of the Savior? And third, first, recognize it for what it is. Second, watch and pray against it. Third, do like Ligon Duncan suggested a few weeks ago. Memorize scripture related to it. Pray scripture. And I would suggest to you Psalm 37, 25. You can remember that, can't you? Psalm 37, 25. David's words. I was young, and they were the words of an older man. I was young, and now I am old. 
Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or the children begging bread. So when you're tempted to worry this week, remember those words. I was young and now I am old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or the children of the righteous begging bread. Let's pray together. Father, we can bear testimony like King David that you've not forsaken us. Uh, you've been faithful to every promise you ever make. You've not broken your word. You've not given us reason to doubt you. So we pray you'd help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Maybe we were doing that years ago. Maybe we were doing it months ago, but we've gotten distracted or preoccupied. We pray that you'd help us to do that and that we would see tangibly that you provide for us in various ways. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.